Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Before we kick off this episode of Headstrong, I want to talk to you about my series sponsor, Green Chef. Now, if you're anything like me, You are always on the go and rarely have time to even think about eating healthy, let alone going to the shop, picking out the right ingredients and then getting home and devoting loads of time to cooking these meals. Luckily, Green Chef are one step ahead. They deliver your ingredients and step-by-step recipe cards directly to your door, making it the easiest and most convenient way to keep healthy eating habits on track. Green Chef offers a wide variety of delicious recipes each week with options including keto, vegan, flexitarian, lower carb and vegetarian diets. Even better, all of these recipes contain one or more of your five a day. What an absolute bonus. Green Chef recipes are developed and approved by qualified nutritionists. So you can relax knowing that your meals align with your dietary needs and lifestyle. So get 40% off your first box and 20% off your next three boxes with the code HEADSTRONG. That's HEADSTRONG for 40% off your first box and 20% off your next three boxes with Green Chef. And welcome back to another episode of Headstrong. You're listening with me, Louis Strong, and I host this podcast. Headstrong is a podcast where I sit down with a number of individuals in the public eye to engage with them and have a chat about their life and their career. But notably, I want to talk to them about their vulnerabilities because I want to understand what the word headstrong means to them. On today's episode, I am joined by Ash Dykes. 
Now, Ash is the most adventurous person that I have ever had on this podcast. His most notable and recent expedition saw him walk the length, yes, that's right, the length of the Yangtze River, which took him over a year, which is truly remarkable. All of his ventures require extreme mental resilience. And that's something that I talked about with Ash today. So I really hope you enjoy this episode of Headstrong. Ash, thank you so much for joining me on Headstrong. How are you doing? Thanks for having me. Doing very well, mate. What about yourself? Yeah, good. We were just saying that uh, we've all, I've organised this at a very poor choice of time on a Friday evening, stealing, <laughs> stealing away precious time from you. <laughs> oh, it's good, good to do it, mate. It's always good to do it. So you are without doubt, the most adventurous man or woman that I've ever spoken to on the podcast. <laughs> okay, nice, nice. So this is season seven it. now. Um, and it's very exciting because it's something that I really want to do a lot more of. Got you, okay. And certainly something that I think everyone should do a lot more of. Yeah, 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 for sure. Um, yes, so I guess, I guess the most important question for where we start is, where did your obsession and kind of love and passion stem from oh it's a long answer can i go ahead well <laughs> as long as the listener's ready i'm ready <laughs> yeah no it started when i was much younger to be honest um when i was a kid you know i was normal upbringing i'm raised in north wales i went on to high school from high school i went to college and it was quite possibly this college course which was kind of like a two-year outdoor education course and it's this course where i learned i was very much a kinesthetic learner you know learning through hands-on practical experience and it was also that course that made me think that you know we all learn in very different ways but for myself university just didn't feel like the ideal path and I was thinking you know what else could I do Um, and that's when traveling actually sprung to mind I think I was 16 or 17 at the time I had this big wild idea to, to get a couple of jobs raise as much money as I possibly can set out for travels but you know, I don't come from a financial background. I'm just there on the windy coast of Wales. There. I was like, how am I possibly going to make this work? Um, you know, I had this mind map um, that my dad helped me put together as well. You know, we came up with different challenges that I needed to overcome and the work that I needed to get. And a friend also wanted to join me. I was, I was now lifeguard and a friend wanted to join me, which was great. I had a travel companion and cutting a long story short, pretty much through breaking my goals down and grinding as hard as possible and selling stuff to make more money. When I was age 19, I, I set off. Um, so I guess it's, it's a, a load of different things that made me want to really go out there and travel. I wanted to explore different cultures, different traditions, learn from different people, learn about myself and how I handle certain scenarios that I will inevitably face when I'm, when I'm traveling. Uh, and then stories when I'm young, you know, documentaries, even David Attenborough shows where you don't want to watch it on TV. You want to be out there amongst it. And so, um, yeah. And, and, you know, that was the first initial travels and then things got pretty crazy from there, to be honest. <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> um, let's, let's stay, let's stay on school though. Were you yeah. very much an, an outdoors kid when you were younger as well at school? Did you enjoy that part of it at school or were you, cause in Wales, I, I imagine you were in fairly, fairly rural area. Yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah, it's just old Cohen or Cohen Bay there on the coast. And But in school, I was very sporty, I would say. The sports probably came first. Um, I was still outdoory, but there was a lot more time spent on sports because, you know, it's more convenient. Um, but then as I 
hit sort of 15, 16, I did get more interested in sort of, it, it, it was kind of like pushing the athletic side, but in the elements now and taking on adventures and wanting to camp a little bit more. Um, and so that's when I found that outdoory side to myself and then sort of college put a stamp on it. College, I was doing avalanche awareness courses. I was doing winter mountaineering survival. Um, and that is where I really got to go all in physically, you know, and, I, and that's what when the spark happened and I thought, right, I want to I want to pursue this somehow and, and keep it going. If we look at education in general for for promoting the outdoors and things like that, of course, we've got the Duke of Edinburgh Award and mm. things like that. I'm currently working at a school at the moment, assisting on, on various things. And one of the things that they offer is forest school. Are you familiar with that? I think I've heard of that. I think, was that starting off in Sweden or Norway? Yeah, maybe. I, I, I'm, that, that, that would make sense. But we have this whole area at school with uh, yeah. how to light fires using flints, uh, beekeeping, yeah. um, all these incredible ideas so outdoors. And how important is that? So to kind of sourcing wood. You know, because I know, I know that not everyone's going to be put in that position if you're from the cent- central London or whatnot. Yeah, yeah. But it's what a great, great idea. Yeah, exactly. And it's something different as well. And I would have loved that as a kid. I would have thrived, you know, that I would have been in my element. I think that there's just one very strict way of teaching and learning, you know. Uh, and I didn't discover that side of myself, you know, the kinesthetic side. I guess we had physical education education um you know i was always very competitive i always came alive when i was doing sports but if there was some sort of outdoor education course uh, and especially the teachers when they're teaching you know we're homo sapiens and back then this is what we used to do to survive oh man i would have loved it i would have loved it so i'm glad to glad to hear they're doing that I, I I haven't managed to wangle myself onto one of the lessons yet, but I did go out to the, a beekeeping kind of tutorial, which was fascinating. That that on it that on its own was pretty cool. Yeah, so, yeah, it's really exciting. That's so cool. It's so cool. They need more stuff like this for sure. For sure. Now, something that you touched on there as well was yeah. lifeguarding. Now, that's a tough gig because one of my best friends did lifeguarding for I reckon a year and a half, maybe. Okay, and. He's got some incredibly funny stories, but also quite horrible stories. Dare I go down that line? Is there anything yeah. that stuck with you from your lifeguarding days? Well, was he beach lifeguarding or was Swimming he lifeguarding? Pool. Ah, yes. So, yes. So there may well be, have been particular objects floating around the pool, shall we say, without lowering yeah. the tone of the podcast. Yeah, no, oh, it was grim. Yeah, I, I was working a few different... I started off actually working temporarily at a fish and chip shop. I then progressed on to be a waiter. And then from there, I was, I was a lifeguard. And the lifeguard, and I think I nailed about one and a half years, trying to save. I was doing 240 hours a month, every month. Sold my car, got myself a bicycle, cycled every day. And in my mind, I was saving money to, to eventually go out to travel. So I put everything in, on hold, you know, nights out the lot. Uh, so I saw a lot when I was lifeguarding, especially for that amount, amount of time. I think I had about 13 saves to my name of people who would just be drowning. And yeah, it was grim. I did see stuff like that in the pool. Um, and especially all sort of the, the, the fat and the hair that you had to get the gloves on and pull out the shower and this smell was, and you have to clean, of course, don't you? And squeegee around. It's uh, It was a pretty cushy job in terms of you sat on poolside 
but for me that's like the worst thing you know I, I needed to be out there doing stuff and I had to sit down for 20 minutes at a time rotating the lifeguard in chairs and you've only sometimes got two people in the swimming pool you know and on another side of it though I suppose lifeguarding suited you because it's that human instinct to save do you know what I mean and I suppose that's probably something that you felt quite compelled to do yeah, yeah. You know, it always excited me a little bit when I saw someone drown. I was like, yes, bit of action. Jump right in. <laughs> <laughs> no, but do you know what I mean? It's um, because because you've got such a, a an instinct yeah. um, for the outdoors and stuff, uh, you know, almost more in touch with um, the outdoors than anyone yeah, else. No, Your you instinct, bite, therefore, yeah. is far more, um, a, I don't know, more, more readily available, I suppose, than yeah, perhaps yeah, myself. Sure. Yeah, yeah, because people would freak out sometimes as well when it comes to that kind of thing. They, you know, it's fight or flight sometimes. Exactly. Um, and with myself, yeah, I always found it quite straightforward and, and, and cracked on. Whereas you're right, some people would hesitate and be like, oh, you know, this isn't me. <clears throat> How essential do you think taking a gap year is, taking that break in between school and university, if you don't think university is for you, or even if you do, using that year as an opportunity? What do you think? Oh, it's a must, you know, as long as you're not sort of majorly in debt financially. If you have got that year, if you have got a bit of money and you don't need much money, you know, initially when I went traveling, my idea was to travel for four years. It took me a couple of years or a year and a half. And I saved just in lifeguarding about 12,000 pounds, you know, and on off I went for this idea of four years with very little money. Um, and so you can do it really cheap as well it can sometimes cost a couple of pounds to stay in an 18 bed dormitory hostel um but it is vital you know you learn so much about the world about yourself as well you know you never you don't really know much about yourself until you're fully tested in you know maybe de dangerous scenarios or maybe embarrassing scenarios or awkward scenarios and you know you really find out kind of what you're made of um and you know i love meeting new people i believe everyone has a story to tell and everyone's got something to teach and I met so many locals along the way. And sometimes they couldn't even, uh, you know, they couldn't, we couldn't converse. We couldn't communicate. But I would still see their way of living and how they went by um, about their life and, and learn an awful lot from them. Uh, you know, and it's fun. It's great fun. You meet lots of people everywhere. It's, uh, yeah, it's a must. Your first trip was to China, wasn't it? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So why China? What was your, um, your idea and... Um... In, in influence to go to China? Where did that inspiration come from? I think for me, it was, so you've got, you've got like a typical sort of tour around the world and a lot of people, they head from the UK, they do America first, they stop by at New Zealand, Australia, and then end up in Asia. But we were doing this tour and we quite liked the way of, you know, going the other way around and independently getting our own flights. We had no tour agency helping with this stuff we would just do on the fly and for me China felt as far away from home as possible you know in terms of culture tradition even the language you know they use the characters of course and so we and me and my friend we wanted to throw ourselves in the deep end and we were just fascinated by how diverse China is we thought we could have a mega adventure there and and then from China we would travel down across Southeast Asia so we just booked our flight to Beijing and uh and that was it. What a wild time. I'm going to come on to kind of preparation and winging it in due course, because that's something that I want to talk about with you. Uh, yeah, but yeah. 
as a kind of extreme athlete, as a professional, as an explorer, as I want to call you, yeah. known for three monstrous trips, right? Uh, and indeed three world record breaking trips. So I want to go through these one by one with you and kind of question you about particular bits. I've, I've done my research. I don't want to ask things that I've heard or read before, but okay. there may well be crossover. Yeah, no worries. So we're going to go with Mongolia first. Yeah. Can you give me your elevator pitch on what it was, the, the, yeah. the, the challenge? Yeah, sure. So this was a world first 1,500 mile trek. Uh, it was pretty much to become the first person ever to walk solo and unsupported across its length, which would be over the Altai Mountains, across the Gobi Desert and through the Mongolian steppe, anticipated to take 100 days, took me 78. And I would be completely solo and unsupported, meaning I would also put a trailer behind me that weighed 18 stone or 120 kilograms, carrying everything I needed to survive. So my first question, because you'd mentioned the Gobi Desert there and immediately... Mm. The word that comes to mind is dehydration. Yeah. And so the first thing I wanted to ask you was how much water could you carry from one camp to the next for yourself? So I had a water container that carried 20 litres of water. And so I would make that try to last me a week, you know, seven days. Um, sometimes more if I was in the Altai Mountains, wouldn't need to drink as much. Sometimes less if I was in the Gobi and it was over 40 degrees. So it got hard rationing that. And the big question mark there with topping up that water container is whether the next water source is available or not. And that comes in the form of a well. It could be dry, it could be stagnant, it could be locked. The locals sometimes lock it up. They move in their nomadic sort of felt tents. Mm. Um, so there were always confirmed and unconfirmed water sources along the way. And I did get caught out by this. Go on, tell me. With that, I rocked up to an unconfirmed water source. So there was a chance that it would be dry or locked, and, and it, it was. It was locked. Um, and I was already dehydrated. I was already really low. I would always anticipate that I would carry enough water to last me an unconfirmed water source and then get me to the confirmed. But it's easier said than done when you're so mm -hmm. dehydrated. And, you know, I was trying to ration it, but I was going through more water. I really needed it. Um, and that's when things got pretty scary. You know, I, I had to continue pushing on, no choice. Um, and I think I was now at my worst, I was about four walking days from the confirmed water source. And I was already majorly dehydrated. I think it was weeks at this point of my Gobi Desert trip. And I'd already faced the Altai Mountains for three weeks. And I started to get delirious. I started suffering severely from dehydration, heat exhaustion on my way to heat stroke, which is usually fatal. I was hallucinating. I was just in a bad way. I was skinny. I was weak. And just to, just to paint the picture, the trailer was 120 kilograms, as I said, but it was thin tires facing a mix of gravel and soft sand. But when I was strapping this four-point harness trailer to me and trying to pull it with my walking poles, this the tires would sink in the soft sand. So mm. it would feel like 500 kilograms and I had to lean 90 degrees, you know, forward really pulling. There was no breeze. There was no natural shade or shelter. The only sort of shade that I could get was by hiding underneath, underneath my trailer. And it was at that point where maybe I'd go 45 minutes to an hour under my trailer. And I realized if I don't keep getting up and pushing on, I'm going to die out here in the Gobi Desert. That's where it was going. I'd missed the point of backup. It was a very low budget expedition 
Um, and so, you know, again, what I learned for my travels when I was first planning for my travels was to break my goals down. And I remember thinking, you know, I can, I can't picture a whole day cause that's too much to visualize, but I can picture, you know, a hundred meters. I can see a hundred meters. And so I would walk a hundred meters, rest for five minutes under my trailer and just broke it down that way. And, and I just about made it pretty much with my life. I mean, there are a few things that I want to talk about from there. So the first being using trips as lessons. So you've probably learned from that trip to build into your next trips, right? Yeah, for sure. And I suppose in a way then, with hindsight, do you think that now knowing the terrain even better, having spent weeks in the Gobi Desert, for example, do you think that having a bigger surface area of tyre would have made that tremendously more easy? Or actually, Um, you know what? you're splitting hairs here yeah i don't think so only because in that one trip i faced almost three different terrains sure sure so for the mongolian steppe and the altai mountains the thin tires were a must and for the gobi desert probably about 80 percent of it was gravel and only 20 percent soft sand and so it was only for that 20 percent that was a killer but that 20 percent pretty much landed at the worst time possible And I suppose this is the worst time mentally. And so something that I need to ask you, and this is probably the, my most important question and we'll get, we'll get stuck in tangents here. You physically train so much for these kind of challenges, but how does one train mentally for something like this? And specifically looking at Mongolia where you're stuck under your trailer, dehydrated for weeks. And if you don't get going, you have the stark reality of fatality. Hmm. How do you mentally stay on top of that and train for it? Great question. It's a great question because when I was training for Mongolia, I used to get that a lot. You know, people would say you train physically, but how how do you train mentally? And I'd always tell them that there's no way to train mentally. But that Mongolia trip taught me a lot, you know, and I, I guess whilst I was physically pushing myself, I was thinking of worst case scenario. So I was almost planning in my head, worst case scenario. I was visualizing. I'm, I'm almost like a, a, a big believer of visualization, the law of attraction, you know, trying to, trying to see it as much as I can before I attempt it. And I was telling myself if there's going to be uh, sand blizzards or snowstorms, you know, picture the worst case. If there's going to be wolves, which there was, um, you know, expect to be attacked by them. Not because I wanted to, but if I'm thinking of worst case scenario and mm. it was to happen, it wouldn't come as a shock or a surprise. It would come as something that I anticipated, something I expected. And, you know, all, all as I do now is crack on and tackle that challenge. I think with us, with humans, they sometimes if something happens that they don't expect, it's easier to panic and make bad decisions and choices then. But if you're expecting it, it comes as second nature and you're like, okay, well, I'm able to handle this because it's not come as a surprise. So there's no point panicking. I knew it was always going to, going to show up, but I, I never knew that until the Mongolia trip until I was doing, it. I, I realized like halfway through, I think when I survived that Gobi desert stint, I was like really staying on top of it all. Um, and that's when I realized by training physically, this was automatically training me mentally. I'd wake up early. I would be outside. I didn't ha- I couldn't afford no gym membership. So I was training from my, from my back garden. So pretty much taking it right back. You know, once I first went traveling, when I was 19 with my friend, I was in China, but from then that's when all of the reckless adventures begun. And I experienced a lot during that time. Um, 
I was cycling across Vietnam and Cambodia on 10 pound bikes. I was learning to how to survive in the jungle with the Burmese hill tribe. I was hitchhiking across Australia. And then I eventually settled as a scuba diving instructor in Thailand and a Muay Thai fighter for two years. And so when I came back home to prepare for Mongolia, you don't earn much money as a scuba diver. So I had about 200 pounds to my name. I moved back in with my mum and dad. And it's in that back garden that I was doing all of the physical and mental preparation. I couldn't even afford no gym membership for a world first record. You know, I couldn't even find sponsor or free place. So my uncle dropped me off a tractor tire. I had a sledgehammer and I got to work. And I think getting out of your warm bed at six in the morning to go out in the rain or snow and grind, I think that does something to you mentally. And I was like, you know, Mongolia is not going to give me that respite. I've got to get out of bed and train outside because when I'm in Mongolia, I, w- I won't have a choice. And so it's in, so it's a great question, it is, and I can go like even more in depth about it because it is one of those that fascinated me because I had a, a lot of fear of Mongolia. I doubted myself. I was scared. There was a a navy soldier who had previous previously attempted this trek three times before, um, but was evacuated just after the halfway point. And I was just a, a scuba diving Muay Thai fighter, twenty two years of age, living on the beach. And I've never been to the desert. I thought, what, what chance do I stand? But, you know, just because no one's found a way to do something doesn't mean it can't be done, right? And I just really focused in and, and tried my best to overcome the hoodle that he couldn't overcome. Okay, so going off that then, where, where does your motivation and like power, mental power come to make sure you try and achieve these goals? So that ability to not give up? Because... You know, a Navy SEAL, let's be honest, some of the toughest people on in the world. Yeah. Um, but he did fall short. Not obviously that there's anything wrong with him. Maybe he was, we no. don't know the situation, of course. Yeah. But where does that come from within you then? I think that is like big self-belief. I think part of it at the beginning was just recklessness, I must admit. Maybe I just underestimated how difficult it would be. And I was kind of like, yeah, you know, I can do it. I train hard, you know, I've never been to the desert, but oh, it'll be fine. Um, so possibly at the beginning stages, um, there was definitely some sort of recklessness there. And, you know, an example of that would be when I was 19 and when I was in Thailand, we came across a local with a machete who offered us to teach, you know, jungle survival if we cross over to Myanmar. So we effectively did illegally via the jungle cross from Thailand into Myanmar at a time where it was closed off to Westerners altogether. It was 2010. Um, that's something I wouldn't do now because I've learned my lesson. But back then I just, I just didn't care. I was like, yeah, that would be great. What an experience, what a story. Um, and so I think there was, you know, only two years on from that, from crossing the border, I was now planning Mongolia. So maybe there was that recklessness that, or that, that naivety potentially. Sure. Mm. Um, but then I had faced dehydration in the past. I had faced sleep deprivation. I had faced a little bit of starvation on the previous adventures across Southeast Asia. And so my body had faced hard times in the past on these adventures. Um, and so, you know, maybe it's a little bit of experience, a little bit of foolhardiness, but a lot of self-belief and a lot of sort of get up and go. And I didn't want to come back and have people tap me on my shoulder and be like, no, oh, you know, you tried your best. 
as I know I've got to make it. I have to make it. <laughs> a perfect potion for success. <laughs> Not wanting anybody to see you as a failure. The ultimate, exactly. the, the, the ultimate soul-destroying aspect of being a human. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, a man of my word. I, I said I'm going to do it. I have to finish it. <laughs> now, when you embark on these challenges, as I, I mentioned, there are months, if not years, of prep on occasion. Now, yeah. in your gap year, as you said you did wing it to a certain extent. Yeah. Can you, yeah. Can you tell me and, and some crazy experiences on, of this winging it vibe? So we've got, we've got the crossing into Myanmar, which is already mad. Have you got any, <laughs> any, anything that stands out in your gap year that you would just go, you know what, I literally could never do that again? Yeah, oh, too many, too many really. You know, a funny one was when I was in, in India, trekking the Himalayas. Again, me and my friend, we were on a very tight budget. We didn't have much money. We were winging it financially as well. Um, but you needed to purchase a permit to trek the Himalayas, the locals told us. And we were already right up north of India, near the border of Pakistan. And we, you know, we were kind of against that. I was like, we're not paying for a piece of paper that says we can trek the mountains. You know, the mountains are there. It's Mother Nature. They're, they're, they're there to be trekked. I don't need to pay for that. Uh, and maybe I did, but I was a little bit silly again, 19, me and my friend were like, let's do it anyway. And the local guy, he went to the effort. He said, like, the, the Pakistan military are on the border. You know, if, if they see you, they might not hesitate to shoot. And then we kind of laughed, thinking, oh, he's, he's, he's lying. He's trying to get money out of us. He's trying to make us pay for this permit. And as we continue to, to go, he says, OK, if you're going anyway, I need to teach you what to do. He says, go, if you come across the military, go on your knees put your thumbs behind your ears and repeat, I think it was Allah, Allah, uh, which is kind of like, Lord, have mercy on me. Uh, and he says, and they might, they might let you go. And then it was at that point, me and my friend were like, maybe he's, maybe he's being serious here. You know, maybe we shouldn't do it, but we went anyway and we were fine. Um, you know, that's another reckless example wow. we were up to. Uh, Vietnam cycle was maybe, may, maybe that was the catalyst. Like the Vietnam cycle was the first sort of away from home adventure. It was only two weeks after we had entered um, our travels. So after China, we went to Cambodia and I just had this, uh, you know, we were on the tourist route. We were sharing the same photos, stories and experiences, which was fine. We were meeting a lot of people as well, which was great. But we wanted to visit the locals. We were there to travel, not to stay on the tourist route, you know. And I said to my friend, you know, we're spending a lot on, on transport, buses, flights, you name it let's do something different. I said, how about we get bicycles? I know we don't have a budget. We can make it cheap and let's cycle Cambodia and the entire length of Vietnam. We're heading up to, to Hanoi up north anyway. So let's not get a bus, let's cycle. And that was about 1,100 plus miles. And my friend sort of laughed. He liked the idea. He was like, you know, oh, what bikes? And as he said that, we heard this screeching noise behind us. We turn around and it's this old lady sort of cycling this way ridiculous looking bicycle it was rusty it had a little bell on the front it just looked it just looked ridiculous so i was like perfect look we can we i reckon we can afford them let's um let's purchase two of them and, and off we go and we did lack of lack of planning we purchased a bike we had no pump we had no puncture repair kit we had no map we had no no suspension or gears on this bike it cost us 10 pound we spent five pound on a non-waterproof tent and we quickly went to an internet cafe to write the different towns and villages that we were hoping to come across along Vietnam and Cambodia. And we tried to copy it in Vietnamese and we would just show the locals and be like, we're trying to get to this 
this one. And they were just pointers in the direction all the way until we reached our main goal. And we were wow. hit by mopeds. We were dodged by lorries. We were chased by dogs. It was reckless, <laughs> but it was great. Vietnam's definitely on the bucket list for sure. Oh, now, but I can't imagine uh, cycling across the length of Vietnam, let alone be, you know being on a moped. Sorry, let alone being on a bicycle. I mean, that, <laughs> that is that is mad. Oh man, they broke about seventeen times as well. I think seventeen. <laughs> oh god, it was it, it was insane. Oh, and at the wow. end, we just looked ridiculous. You know, I think we were turned down about seven times by the time we eventually finished because our hair our beards our, you know I was all spotty then as well and I had uh, my skin was blue because the mosquito spray of the evening mixed with the sunscreen of the day and so we were turned down when we finally made it you know especially that last day I think we cycled 39 hours straight we went over 45 hours without sleep and these locals were saying you're not staying here because we just looked so terrible they thought we were on drugs or something so we just, they were just telling us no wow <laughs> mental that's absolutely insane. You must have a million stories. But now let's, let's navigate on to challenge number two of your, your trilogy of challenges. Yes. Madagascar. Madagascar. What an incredible country. I, I, that's on my bucket list to genuinely go. I've been looking at it very recently to try and go there. Um, now, my first question, other than carrying chickens to fend off spirits, what else did you do in Madagascar? Madagascar was, so that was a 1,600-mile trek. Took, what, 155 days, that one was. Um, I was held up at gunpoint by the military. I had to cross crocodile-infested rivers. There, you know, we had to hack through almost impenetrable jungle, you know, machete in hand, hacking through. We would cover maybe two, three miles. Yeah, it would take us 14 to 16 hours. We were bit by spiders, leeches, we were hunting, we were gathering, and I caught the deadliest strain of malaria and pretty much almost lost my life from it. So there were lots of challenges. You know, that was a, I don't think there was one day, one day's hike in Madagascar where it was just a pleasant day trek. And every day there was a challenge, you know, there was always something. But it was an amazing country. And if you get the chance to go there, oh, do it. Well, I don't know. You've done a pretty good job of putting me off, actually. (laughs) Yeah. But what I want to talk to you about specifically on of this trip is the malaria episode. Because, and, and naturally, by the sounds of this trip, it sounds even more primal than your previous trip in the sense that you were hunting and gathering and really um, living off the land and so forth. But if we talk about the malaria episode and where you were mentally with this, yeah, because what was racing through your head during that episode? Because you were not far away from dying. Yeah, yeah. You know, once I arrived at the city that I was trying to get to, um, I went straight into a hotel because I couldn't go to a hospital. I had to quarantine because I had, you know, I had malaria, and if a mosquito bites me, someone else they've got it too. And the doctor, I didn't know what I had. I can. The guest, I had something that wasn't right, um, but she took my blood. She came back about five minutes later and she she said, you've got falsipara. It's the deadliest um, strain of malaria. There's four different strains. And she, she said that you made it, you know, any longer, maybe a few hours longer, she said you would have slipped into a coma. Um, you know, like my temperature was like 39 or 40 degrees Celsius, a degree more than that, it'll send me into a coma. So it was scary. And, you know, I was trying to get there for, for a long time. Uh, I don't know how, like, falsely parin. So the four different strains, you've got the three lower strains, mm-hmm. and they can remain dormant in your system forever. But they might not kill you. They probably won't 
kill you. However, you've got falciparum, and this is likely to kill you within 24 hours, but it's the only strain that you can eradicate completely out of your system. So I like to look at it positive, like the negative, yeah, I've got malaria and it's falciparum, but the positive side is it's fully eradicated out of my system. But when I first got it, I had the science and symptoms were similar to that of the Gobi Desert. I felt severely dehydrated. I was a little bit delirious. I was like, what is this? Because I've been drinking a lot of water. I wouldn't make the same mistake twice. Um, and then I just started deteriorating. I was getting worse and worse. I was taking my anti-malarial pills the whole time. Get this. And I arrived in a small community and they were actually suffering with the bubonic plague. Many villages on the way suffer with the bubonic plague. And, you know, they said, stay in your tent, zip up, you know, we'll bring you uh, food and water. And they did. But the food that they bought was like rotten. This is pretty much how I came to catch malaria. You know, they bought rotten eel. Okay, I didn't, I wasn't 100%. It was rotten. It smelled funky. Me and my guide, we were just super hungry. We asked no questions. We ate it. For the next few days, I had diarrhea. And, you know, I was vomiting a little bit. And so the anti-malarial pills that only cover you 80%, I would take it and it was just coming out. But what, yeah, so I mm. didn't have my full 80% protection. It was coming out, you know, even by vomiting or diarrhea. And that's how malaria got a hold of me. But without that, you know, without the anti-malaria, it would have potentially killed me within 24 hours. So the malaria, the anti-malaria pills allowed me to last, you know, five days to, to get to safety. This might sound like a really stupid question. Do Does carrying hydration um sachets help at all or is that actually a bit of a myth does that not really help is water just the reliable area or no no just in general for you on your trips for example you know with hindsight in the gobi mixing these hydration sachets because you see them you see people drinking them after hangovers for example oh yeah you got you like the little electrolytes yeah is is that is that a beneficial thing to do do you carry those yeah, I do actually. I did. I carried them in in the desert and in Madagascar. Yeah, it just uh, to rehydrate you more. Uh, and in Madagascar, especially up north, we were getting natural electrolytes from the from the coconuts. Um, they're so hydrating. And so, yeah, it is a thing. And I did carry quite a lot of that. Absolutely. Now, were you aware of the severity? of what was going on? Like, were you well-educated on malaria and the four strands as you've just talked to me about it? Were you educated on it enough to know, oh, now actually this is so serious that I, I actually need to be thinking about other things right now. It's not about the trip. This is about survival. Yeah, yeah, for sure. You know, I, I wasn't educated to the point where I knew the four different strains that came after I actually became ambassador for Malaria No More UK. Uh, and they, they also taught me a lot. Um, but I was aware of malaria and how rife it is in Madagascar, you know, rips families apart, communities, you name it. It's, it's awful there. Um, and you know, when I found out I had it, my heart sunk because I always thought once you've got malaria, you've got it forever. And that's right to a certain degree with the three lower strains, but just not the strain that I had. Um, and so, yeah, it was a point where I was unsure and, and the doctor that was treating me couldn't speak English. So I had to speak on over the phone to a French speaking English doctor who was able to translate. So I had so many questions that I couldn't ask and had to try to research online that, um, yeah, I didn't know what it would do to me. I I went through a a scare and I was just on my own in that hotel room with my, with my mind. And it it did send me into, you know, my mind was thinking all sorts of negative stuff. I, I, it changed me slightly and only temporarily. I was not liking the people there. I was not liking the country. And I was only one month into a 
five-month expedition, I lost 13 kilograms already. Wow. So all of that training kind of went out the window and I've still got the hardest to come. Um, but day by day, you know, I started to get better. I was feeding my body with the right nutrients, minerals, and vitamins. And, you know, I was trying to train in my room. I was trying to surround myself with positive vibes and, and sort of looking at the longer term of, you know, when I do get better, I can crack on and, you know, and I will finish this. And I start to get more upbeat and, and decided to, to crack on to continue recover, which it took me eight days to recover. And then I continued. And then it just sounds like it's a matter of, switching a mindset and really however difficult it is battling that negative mindset and trying to swing it around and look at the positive in everything even if it's i don't know making sure you actually do have a nice hot cooked meal uh, yeah. or something that will yeah. and then the next day you'll improve and then the next day and then exactly as you say eight days later you're absolutely mad and you carried on i would have been on first flight home <laughs> Yeah, I think my family wanted me to take the flight home. You know, they were like, what are you doing? This isn't the flu or a cold. This is malaria. And you, you were just going, no, I haven't completed it. I'm not coming home. Yeah. <laughs> You're not going to tap me on the shoulder? My flight's from the way. other end of the island, guys. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Brilliant. Um, <laughs> in all seriousness, though, with these experiences so far, and then we'll talk about your third trip shortly. Yeah. How important is it to have the ability to have access, even if it's the smallest of bits, to safety in the sense that you have some level of support. Even when you're on your own, you must have yeah. a plan for safety. How important is that for a traveler? And, and I suppose the second part of that question is, what are your top traveler's tips? Yeah, got you. So it is vital, you know, especially when I first started off traveling, the first few years, there was just no backup. There was no support. Um, Mongolia... It was better. You know, I had a logistics manager that was proper planning because it was a, a world first, but still I didn't have the, the funds for helicopter evacuation. Um, my agent who wanted to whip me out would take four days to get to me and two days to get out. That's potentially six days. Whereas if you stand on the back end of a snake, that's, that's too late. Madagascar was better again because I could start affording it now and with malaria, I had such good insurance that potentially they could have sent a helicopter in and, and taking me mainland to Johannesburg for proper treatment. Um, and, you know, if things were worse, that was always there. You know, if my malaria did get a hold of me and I slipped into a coma, if I didn't have that insurance and that sort of evacuation plan, then maybe, you know, you, you, you could potentially die. Um, so, yeah, no, it is vital. It's, it is important, especially when you're doing these expeditions that are so reckless. I think people see what I do and think sort of it's daredevil or he has a death wish. And early on the early adventures, yeah, I agree, fully reckless, but now it is meticulous planning. It's attention to detail. It's studying every challenge that can go wrong and sort of understanding how you can possibly overcome it. Like with any career, right? But whilst you climb and the ladder, you're learning how you can get through each stage. Um, so it is vital. And, but saying that some of my top travel tips would be don't overplan. You know, the reason that I was planning so much because with my expeditions, it's not a sport. It's not a case of winning or losing. It's a case of living or dying. And if it's your life on the line, then, you, you know, you've got to be prepared and make sure you have got all of the right um, sort of safety lines and emergency backup in, in place. But if you're just going out to travel, I find a lot of people can overplan and it, it puts them off. They take too much time. They need too many resources and, you know, the Vietnam cycle is a perfect example. We purchased bikes. That's all we had. And 
off we went. And that was the catalyst to the career that I'm living now through lack of planning and idea that same day off we went. Um, it almost sounds like the part of traveling and cause I did, I've been to New Zealand and Australia. Naturally that's probably more first world than your, um, used to, but I think part of the, the luxury of traveling is you have to have the mindset of go with the flow almost. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Cause you can plan all you like, but things will, you know, you probably know yourself. Where, yeah. Whereabouts were you in, when, in Oz? Uh, well, well we did, did all the way down the east coast so not uh, <laughs> pretty touristy yeah the wild but they are i really wanted to go up down up to the north territory but unfortunately i ran out of time but it's definitely a place Got i want yeah. to get back to but my yeah, biggest fear yeah. is spiders but that's a whole nother can of worms <laughs> uh, yeah they've got them all over there haven't they <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we're not gonna we're not gonna talk about that let's let's transition very smoothly <laughs> over to your third and most recent expedition walking the length of the biggest river in asia the yangtze yes i mean that's that's barking mad when i you know when i because i've seen your articles in in various publications and i've read this and i was like jeez i mean that that is crazy (laughs) it's been insane hasn't it yeah where do you draft these ideas from where did this particular idea come from and why so pretty much when i was 19 and, and first went to china as you know we kind of skirted down the east coast there and left china for southeast asia and when i looked back at the map of china and realized how big it was i was kind of like saying to my friend matt we've not really traveled china we it's such a massive country it's so diverse that i was just super curious about it um and of course you know world firsts do attract me and the nile river has been walked the amazon has been walked and the yangtze was the third biggest river um, no evidence to suggest that it had ever been walked from source to sea. It would take me from the Tibetan plateau at over 5,100 meters, mm. 4,000 miles later and 352 days later, it pours out into the East China sea in Shanghai. And it just blew my mind. I was like, I was looking through the 11 different provinces that I would cross through. I'd be looking at the diversity one minute. There will be like minus 20. It'll be bears. It will be wolves. And the next it will be tropical sort of, environment where you're trading your bears and wolves for your snakes and spiders and you know the culture throughout and the food and i just started to get super excited about it the minute i thought about it and actually i i kate i thought about the yangtze when i was doing madagascar or before i left for madagascar and even the madagascar idea came from when i was hiking across mongolia so i'm always planning ahead setting the next thing up that's really interesting. And particularly, I want to talk about the wild animals and your experiences with that, because I know that you have previously said that you were tracked, basically, by uh, um, some wolves. Is mm. that correct? Yeah, yeah. Now, I know that you, you've said, basically, expect the worst, hope for the best. So expect to be hunted by wolves. <laughs> yeah. how, how do you manage that and actually try to shake them off? Or even if an attack was imminent, what was your plan and process for that? Yeah, so with the wolves, this was quite an interesting one and a funny one in a way too. Um, it was me and Kyle, my videographer, we were filming for uh, a Nat Geo documentary. I had film crew at certain stages and he was with me and he's fluent in Mandarin. And as we were walking off towards the valley, we were speaking to uh, a group of Tibetan guys and they didn't speak Chinese. They were speaking Tibetan, which Kyle couldn't understand. And I just remember vividly them trying trying to warn us against going down that valley. And I wasn't sure 
the why or what they were trying to say, but we kind of like were waving like, yeah, thank you, you know, bye-bye. And we carried on walking down that valley. But we had filmed it all. We caught it all on camera. Anyway, as we pushed on for the next two days, there was howling and the wolves were always in close proximity to us. They normally cover a greater distance. So they were definitely watching us, probably testing to see if we we're weak. And if I was on my own, it would have been intimidating, but they're not the big gray wolves in China. Right. And slightly smaller. And so I kind of didn't think much of it yet. It was a little bit creepy, but it was also awe inspiring, you know, to hear them all howling. I think there was about maybe five or six um, wolves. Anyway, fast forward four to five months, and that footage that Kyle filmed is now with my editing team in Beijing, in which one of the editors calls me up and said, you had no idea what those Tibetan guys were telling you. And they said that only yesterday, right down that valley where you're heading, a local lady was killed by a pack of wolves, you know, so don't go down there. But we didn't know, so we're just waving like, thank you, Zaitien, bye-bye. And yeah, potentially it was that same pack. Uh, and with there being two of us, um, maybe that deterred them. And we had the big backpacks as well. So, yeah, it was creepy. It was creepy for sure. But um, we've talked not about as bad as bears. Yeah. Did you have you encountered bears? We've talked oh, about snakes, spiders. Go on. What's the most, ter- what's the most terrified you've actually been in a, for an, an animal encounter? Be that quite literally face to face or tracking or, or so forth? bears for sure mate oh god they just and it's funny because i kind of went out there with a healthy mindset you know leave the bears alone and the bears will leave you alone what type of bear is it by the way they were the tibetan brown bears right so they're not as big grizzlies but they're they're a fair size still um and the locals were pretty much telling me otherwise you know i was there leave the bears alone they'll leave me but they were just showing me images they were showing me videos of bears going into communities, you know, killing people. There's a particular season that you don't want to be trekking the mountains in, uh, and it's near their torpor season, which is kind of like hibernation. And it's where the mountains get so cold that they come off the mountains um, because of the temperatures, and they'll actively be searching for food for calories before they go into torpor. And so that's the time you don't want to be there, but the expedition was delayed by two and a half months, so we were there at that time. And, you know, I saw fresh bear footprints. I did see a bear in the distance. Luckily, there was no encounter. But, you know, I literally had locals present me with knives. Um, They said air horns won't matter because I had a whistle and an air horn. And as long as you, are, you know, making yourself aware, the bears will tend to stay away. But Mm. what usually happens with the Tibetans and how they're so often attacked is they'll stumble upon a bear on accident. And the bear will panic. It's in close proximity. Self-defense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, apart from the torpor season when they actively look for food. Right. And I've got a video on my Instagram where actually a bear comes into the community. It chases a man. The man jumps on the truck, jumps off on the other side. And the bear all the way follows and climbs up onto the truck and goes after him. Wow. Um, they, will, they will have you. Um, you can't do anything. These locals are passing me a knife. I am not doing anything to a bear. No, absolutely not. Uh, with that in mind, were you were you carrying not weapons as such? Because obviously you were primal. You were living in in the wilderness on occasion. Um, so, did you you were carrying? I suppose knives for your own hunting, or indeed firewood and so forth. But nothing for hunt like the hunting of a bear. Yeah. Well, yeah, well, in China there was no hunting or gathering. Uh, oh. 
Yeah, that was it was only the north of Madagascar which was hunting and gathering. So with China, we were coming across locals all the time. I think the longest time we maybe went without seeing a local was a week in which I had ration packs and it was always going to be in the mountain towards the beginning of the expedition. And as I get further along the Yangtze, more communities turn to towns, turn to full-blown mega cities. Um, and so I was able to rely on the generosity of the locals taking me in or giving me food. And, mm. you know, sometimes I'd seek protection from uh, communities as well, away from wolves, away from bears. Um, they would always think that I'm a madman just walking out in the wilderness with all this wildlife. And so they would always welcome me in. And it was so special. The locals were just absolutely incredible along the way. I mean, I think that's a perfect transition point into what I want to talk about, because you've done some amazing work for charities. And indeed, you're a mm-hmm. massive ambassador for a heap of charities. But I really want to have a discussion about the environment, mm-hmm. because you've spent time with a variety of tribes across the world and indeed experienced a variety of cultures. Yeah. How is what we're doing in the first world affecting these people, the burning of fossil fuels, the distribution of plastics so freely and easily, and indeed waste management? How is that affecting these communities and cultures? I, I just see it's on a huge level of how much we, we waste. You know, you can just notice how much these smaller towns and communities out in, let's say, the west of China how very little they use it. But of course, the east of China and the mega cities, it's it's completely different. Mm. Like what's interesting is when I was in when I was in Tibet, we came across I like a, a sort of um, an environmentalist who actively was going round, this was in the past, but he was actively going round to these communities and he was actually educating them on the harm of plastics. And in the Tibetan culture, it's against their way of life. To, to do damage to, to earth or insects. For example, if they've got a hot cup of tea, they won't throw it on the grass. They'll throw it in the air so that it can cool down before it hits the grass in case there's insects. So they're all about protecting the natural environment. And he said that they just almost instantly stopped using plastic or would find other means. The moment they knew plastic does harm for the environment, they were able to change. And that's our issue in the West is we're not able to change. We're not able to adapt. We're not able to know that something's bad and I'll correct it because it's convenient. It's easy. Um, And so that was something major that I learned, just the significance of how quick they were able to change their way once they knew. Then they probably didn't even notice how much of a scale we're damaging the planet. They just know it's not good for the environment, so we'll stop. Um, Whereas it's just a a little bit harder here, isn't it? So what can we do, in your opinion, to continue this? You know, someone like me on a day-to-day level or, you know, just generally, what what would be your sound advice? It's always tough, again, because it's the, you've got to look at the bigger picture. It's the bigger companies, isn't it? It's the government. It's at an institutional level, isn't it? It is. It is, you know, but we can make small steps. We can recycle. We can stop wasting as much food we can start using you know a perfect example is i took a a water bottle on my entire journey across my next question (laughs) yeah the water to go bottles right yeah that's right yeah and by using this one bottle this prevented me from and we calculated it it prevented me from using around 1500 half liter single use plastic bottles which 80 percent of those bottles would have gone to, to waste. You know, they wouldn't probably only 10 to 20% of those bottles would have been recycled. 
Um, and so by using this one bottle, I was able to save that many plastic bottles. I didn't use that many plastic bottles and it's got a built-in filter. I could drink directly from the Yangtze, you know, so it turns out to be even healthier as well. Um, and so I think less single use products, food waste, recycle, you know, take local transport or, or cycle or walk, um, or, or, or plays a part for the bigger picture, doesn't it? Now let's look at those tribes because I really want to ask you, what's the, what's your favorite? Ex- I know that this is so, so difficult, a horrible question, but what's <laughs> your favorite experience of a culture or indeed a family or a tribe that you've experienced that it would be that even that you couldn't converse in English or in conversation, but you just knew that that was an incredibly wholesome experience. Yeah. Wow. That's a great question. I have had so many of those, so many, um, you know, one example, this isn't even the biggest example, but I think this just sort of shows how amazing the locals were is in Mongolia. When I started, started to enter the Gobi desert, I just turned around, looked behind me. I was just gazing, you know, the scenery. I saw in the distance just a little cloud of smoke into what appeared to be a guy on a horse. And he traveled ages. I could see him in the distance. It's all open land. He takes forever to get to you. And eventually, you know, when he did arrive, he just gave me like a takeaway chai, like a cup of tea, takeaway, uh, dropped it off with me, gave, gave me his well wishes turned around and galloped all the way back. I don't know how long it would have taken him, probably a while, but he saw me in the distance and thought, I'm going to go and help him. I'm going to provide him um, with some fluids. You know, and he went far out of his way to do that. Other examples have just been locals who have welcomed me in. I think in the West, when I was in Tibet, I was in this sort of white felt tent and they had one double bed where the whole family of four, you know, the mum, dad, and the two kids would sleep. And they gave up their bed so that I could have a good night's sleep. And they all slept on the floor. And I was telling them, like, no, I've got a sleeping mat. I've got a sleeping bag. I'll sleep on the on the floor. But they insisted. They're like, we'll not have you sit on the floor, um, you know, sleep sleep on the bed. And another example, again, would be in China, how I was in this sort of hotel um, once I'd made it to a community. And I needed to check in because the government needed eyes on me. And they were knocking on my door and, you know, I kind of didn't, it was Chinese New Year and I kind of didn't want to get in their way. I wanted them to, to celebrate. And so I was telling them that I'm busy. They invited me to, to spend Chinese New Year with them. And he was knocking. It was the guy and his daughter. He was knocking. He was knocking. Anyway, they went away. Five minutes later, he comes back and his wife's there and she's demanding. She said, no one spends New Year. This was translated to me, but no one spends New Year's alone. You know, we, we demand you come up to the balcony and you spend New Year's because you can't enter the new year, um, you know, on your own. And I was just like, wow, you know, these people are really going out their way. It's not like that. Be nice. They'll offer, but hope that I say no because they want family time. But they'll come down and they demand that I spend New Year so that I, I can have a good New Year with a different family because my family and my friends are on there. And that just goes a long way. You know, you really feel that stuff. That's incredible. That so that that I think that goes so against what the West probably stands for, as in over here in the, the terms of welcoming. I mean, you get on the tube in London, you're lucky to get eye contact with someone, let alone a hello. Yeah, it's so true. It's so true. It's it's a shame, you know. And I do know that when you do communicate with these people on the subway, they're really nice people as well. Um, but yeah, we definitely don't 
reach out and, and communicate. Maybe that's because there's lots of us. Maybe that's because I think it's because we're too busy looking well. down. Yeah, and that and that you're right. You're right. Um, I th- something that I did want to talk about there. I don't know whether it's probably sensible for me to go down this. I want to talk about China and and what you were going on there about um, having eyes on you and the yeah. governance from from I assume the government. Yes. What, what was the reasoning for that? So did they think you were a super spy. So no, they didn't. So this was such a difficult expedition to plan. So this one took me t- two years to plan actually. Um, and I needed to go about this expedition completely different. I needed to create friends and bring teams on board um, so that they could. So the Yangtze River, it pretty much borders Tibet and China. And China and Tibet is super sensitive. I won't even go down that road, but it's no. super sensitive. And, you know, to get access to such a sensitive region, get this, I needed a production team that could introduce me to the Green Development Foundation. And the Green Development um, Foundation would give me a temporary year-long doctor certificate. So they made me doctor for a year because I needed to be doctor to be introduced to some other organization, which would introduce me to the Three Sources National Park to get access. But in order to get access, they needed to introduce me to the local Qinghai government. And if they gave me the stamp and signature... They could then introduce me to the Qinghai authorities to offer protection. And this went on and I had 13 different stamped and signed documents that I had to laminate and carry with me. And I did face police trouble. I did face questioning. I faced the threat of them deporting me. But because of the planning, I was so heavily backed up by the government that they couldn't touch me. They couldn't Amazing. Me. They had to drop me exactly where they picked me up from and allow me to continue. Whereas if I didn't go to the two years planning, I would have been deported, what, on day number six? Oh, dear. I think it was, yeah. And, and so, it's practically a year challenge, that's not ideal. Exactly, exactly. And so I was watched, and there were a lot of hotels along the way. Once I got into built-up areas that I would actually actively have to check in so the government could see that I'm safe, that I'm there, that I am where I say I will be. Um, and that was fine. I think at first they were a bit sensitive, but news started to build. The press was major in China. Mm. Um, and, you know, in each region I went to, it was TV interview after interview, journalists, magazines, papers. So I think eventually they got the message that actually I'm not there to do harm or, or do damage or criticise. Um, I'm there admiring the beauty and the diversity of your country and enjoying trekking through and meeting people along the way whilst creating a documentary, also sharing that. So um, they, they took me in very well after that. This might sound like a very random question, but I've got a real passion for English. So in that sense, do you, did you, have you ever carried um, a book or a Kindle or something to unwind and take your mind off things? Um, no, I did. I took just my iPhone in Mongolia. Um, and occasionally I would try, I, would, I, I think I downloaded three movies onto my phone. And occasionally I would watch that and I would watch a movie because it gave me that sense of comfort mm. when I was so vulnerable and so alone. You know, I went over eight days in Mongolia without seeing a single human, you know, I was in the middle of the desert. And then to get out and watch a movie, it would almost throw you back to civilization. You get a taste of that. And I remember I had like a big pack of peanuts, everything I had to ration. So I'd watch a movie and I'd eat five peanuts a night. Wow. I wouldn't watch the full movie. I'd watch like, 20 minute sections and you know it'd take me like whatever a few days to finish the movie 
Well, the essential question, of course, is what were the three movies? What were they? They were the only ones that I could get access to literally a week before I left, which was Contica. Contica. Right, okay. I didn't know it. Yeah, it, uh, there is Inglorious Bastards. Oh, yeah, of course. And Step Brothers. Aha, very good. Needed some entertainment. I needed to laugh. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. Humour does go a long way. And indeed, from a, me- a mental health side of things, a real remedy to switch that mindset. Yeah, 100%. You're right. Yeah, yeah. And I actually got shouted out by one of my speaking agents when I was in Madagascar because, you know, I'm always kind of so upbeat and positive. And when I'm faced with a challenge, I'm never feeling down or feeling sorry for myself because. I volunteered, I put myself through it. And so when I would post videos saying like, I've done this or I've been held up at gunpoint, it'd always be done, not always with a smile on my face, but always quite upbeat and, you know, it's over now. And you'd be like, come on, you know, you need to, you need to show that it's difficult because right now people are thinking it's easy. You've just caught malaria, but you're smiling about catching malaria. So people think it must be nothing. I do get his point. You know, you kind of do need to paint the picture, but it's that positive and that humour that you need that will get you through these challenges in the first place. Okay, as we unwind, you've probably been asked this one before, but I feel it's a new year. We have to ask it. What does 2022 hold in terms of goals, personal goals? And stemming from that, what's the, what's the ultimate challenge for you? This year is a, a big year. It's an exciting year. I have got something planned in the pipeline um, for TV. I can't say when or where just yet, unfortunately. Embargo, embargo. Yeah, I should be able to talk more about it within the next month or two, but I cannot wait to get that going. But other goals is just, you know, typical health, happiness, training, build the business as well, expand, meet more people, connect, get get traveling more this year, you know, get out and about this year um and keep ticking off goals i think last year i got my paramotoring license skydiving license this year i want to keep progressing and keep growing in any way i can i guess um make this year better than last and and so on what about yourself what this year goals wise um oh goals 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 do you know what (laughs) this is going to sound ridiculous it's not even a goal it's just something that i need to do yeah this is going to sound ridiculous as well and such a first world problem because of COVID. I haven't been on holiday for such a long time. No, I've got you, yeah. I to go somewhere and just yeah. go, do you know what? I want to forget about everything yeah. and enjoy myself in another country. And that's what I want to do. That mindset as well, doesn't it? You know, it's great for your mental health, just getting yeah. away. Just to restart uh, things like that. Uh, and then I've got various acting goals. Trying nice. to do that. I've got this series of the podcast, which was already a goal and it's already... Um, got the full guest list, which is phenomenal. That's ace, congrats. Great. And then I'll try and do another one uh, the second half of the year and see how that goes. But yeah, things are looking good, I think. Excellent. I hope it's a big year for you, mate. It sounds yeah, like likewise, likewise. Final two questions for you then. Sure. Apart from your water-to-go bottle, what is uh-huh. one thing you couldn't do your trip without? Oh. Could I include a team? Or do you want item? Let's do both. Okay. Want an item and the team? Go on. Yeah, I definitely. You know, I think there's a lot of there's a lot of team players behind it. There's a lot of sort of fixers and logistics managers and guides that don't get the recognition they deserve on a lot of expeditions that I've seen. So for me, it'd be the guides um, and and the team that help to support it and give it a green light and ultimately make it a, a giant success. So 
definitely a team. Um, and oh, it depends on the environment now. But yes, would, of course, I would say water. I would definitely say knife. And when I say knife, you've got the small knife, but a machete oh, in Madagascar. I actually bought it home with me. I don't know how I managed to get it back in the country. Do you it's still cool. have it in Wales then? Yeah, yeah, it's all rusted. It's this big-ass machete. Um, but that that saved me so, so many times, really. Um, I've just got this vision of you sauntering uh, through the Heathrow Airport, through nothing to declare, and just <laughs> the officers looking at you going, no, 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 no. You've got a two-foot machete on you, buddy. <laughs> yeah oh wow so definitely yeah water to go bottle um and the machete and yes yeah, solid team amazing uh my final question is one that i ask every guest that comes on the podcast and a word that i think associates with you but i want to see what you think so what does the word headstrong mean to you headstrong discipline discipline and doggedness you know headstrong is that willingness to keep getting up and keep pushing. Headstrong is, whilst no one else sees it for you, it's understanding that that doesn't matter because what's important is that you can see it for yourself. Um, And so you've got to be headstrong no matter what you face. Fantastic answer. Uh, Ash, I really, really enjoyed this chat. Thank you so much. Likewise, I much, much appreciate it. That That was great. And that's it for this episode of Headstrong. If you've enjoyed the episode, please do go leave a review and a rating. And please share it with your family and friends. Every little helps. Again, a massive thank you to our series sponsor, Green Chef, for their continued support. And that's it for this episode. Catch you next week for another episode of the podcast. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 